J-Files on Double J. In the late 80s, a group of teenagers from Limerick in Ireland formed a little band called the Cranberries. None of them could have predicted that they'd become one of the biggest names in alternative rock, an achievement that was certainly helped by the woman who stood at the front of the group, writing from the heart and singing from the gut, Dolores O'Riordan. Dolores O'Riordan passed away in January 2018, but she left behind a huge legacy, which includes a final posthumous record that the band were working on before she died. I'm Gemma Pike, and this is The J-Files. The story of the Cranberries is really quite remarkable when you think about it. They didn't come from the big musical cities like New York or London or even the grunge headquarters in Seattle. Apart from Dolores, they weren't even particularly musical people. But when they found each other, the sum of all their parts really created something special. I invited Cranberry's guitarist and co-songwriter, Noel Hogan, to be part of this J-File and to share the stories behind the music. We started by talking about how the Cranberries found each other. Basically, it, it began mid-80s. I would have met, like, Mike's my brother, the bass player. So, um, you know, obviously we knew each other. Um, but Ferg, I met Ferg through, of all things, breakdancing in the 80s. Um, Ferg lived nearby me, um, about five miles maybe, and uh, he came over to where I lived. There was a kind of a big area, park, um, where a lot of kids hung out. And uh, I first met Ferg there and we kind of, we hit it off and we just remained friends ever since. And then as we kind of got older and more into the kind of um, the late 80s, we became a lot more interested in kind of alternative music. We used to start, we started listening to bands like The Cure, The Smiths, Echo and the Bunnymen, that kind of thing. And around that time, a lot of bands in Limerick started to form where we grew up, uh, a lot of local bands. And we kind of, you know, we used to go to the gigs all the time. Never really thought we'd be in a band, but uh, we're really, really into the music. Um, so eventually, Farag started playing drums, Mike picked up the bass, and finally I, I got a guitar. And uh, that was how it kind of, it was formed as in the three of us. Uh, there was a friend of ours, who was in another local band. He was a drummer in that band, but wanted to be a singer. So he joined us for a while. I'd say maybe five, six months, maybe. And the good thing about that was we, the three of us knew nothing about how songs worked. And we kind of learned through him, look, this is, you know, how it comes together a little bit. Um, We were absolutely terrible. We were really bad. But anyway, Niall left. And a few months later, no, it was true Niall, who was the singer who had left, that we met Dolores. His girlfriend knew Dolores, and I met him on the street, and he said, if you're still looking for a singer, I know a girl. And that was kind of it. Like, there was a Sunday afternoon, he brought Dolores up to meet us, and um, we just kind of headed off, you know, and, uh, uh, like, I played her. There was a few songs we had, kind of instrumental versions of, and Dolores had some of her own stuff, and we kind of played stuff for each other, and that was it. It just... That was the moment it kind of the, the four of us came together. Mm, very organic, small town sort of vibes. The connects yeah, from one person yeah. knows another. You you mentioned exactly. a few, 
You mentioned a few um, things in there, like you were into breakdancing with Ferg. You said that you started getting into The Cure and The Smiths. Um, is Can you give us any more examples of like other music that you guys all really bonded over? Was there like a particular album that you just poured over and went, yep, we're going to be in a rock band? Um, well, I think like for me, what a girl in my class gave me um, – the Cure, Staring at the Sea, which was kind of like a greatest hits, even though I didn't know it at the time. And that was the first kind of album I'd heard where I really, really liked what I heard here, but I'd never heard it on the radio. I wasn't aware of this or, you know, that there was all these bands out there. And it kind of, for me, I've always kind of thought that's kind of the moment where my musical taste kind of changed because I had grown up like it's a small town we had a couple of radio stations a national one and two kind of local ones but they all played like top 40 only you know pop very stuff that everybody would have heard um so this kind of opened up the world really to you know you kind of from the cure you kind of you heard about the smiths you heard about echo and the bunnyman new order um you know susie and the vanishes there was like the cocktail twins these were all these bands we kind of started to kind of really, really get into. And there was a little group of us that hung around together. And uh, you know, there wasn't one, like, album that I would have picked up ever and got, this is, you know, I want to be in a band now kind of thing. In fact, for me, it all came about by accident because Mike and Farg were playing together. My parents bought me a guitar and kind of said, you might as well do something, when you're, you know, just hanging around looking at the two of them. And that's how I ended up playing. I was at, like, uh, my ambition really was to work in a record store. That's what I, I kind of would have been really, really happy with that. Cranberries released their debut album, Everybody Else Is Doing It So Why Can't We, in 1993, and it became a huge hit. It topped the UK charts and went top 20 in the US and Australia. But you might be surprised to find out that it actually took a little while to take off. I asked Noel if he can remember that time and how they finally found their audience. Yeah, like, it was really, really weird because we we recorded that album and um, we were, you know, we couldn't believe, you know, we, we weren't in a, a together that long when, by the time we got in to work with Stephen Street, who was the producer. And we were really, really happy with it. We were kind of, you know, a bit shell-shocked in almost in, in some ways that we had, within the space of a few years, gotten together, demoed songs, and suddenly had an album out on a proper label. Then the album came out and... It just, it was released in the UK and Ireland um, and it just died. It just bombed. It, you know, it was a real anticlimax for us because you, you're waiting for this to come out. You think, oh, it's going to be great. And it wasn't. Um, nobody was really bothered with it. We got no radio play. We got, you know, we were playing to empty rooms. And as the months went on, I think we felt that uh, it was probably going to be, you know, a phone call at some point from the record company going, look, thanks for everything, but this hasn't worked out and we're going to move on and, you know, we'd be dropped and that would be it. And um, it was almost a year later when Linger was released in the US 
Um, now, we'd been signed by the US office of, of, it was Island Records we signed to, and it was a guy called Denny Cordell who had signed us out of New York. And he had always kind of said to us, don't worry, it'll be fine, I'll, you know, I really believe in you. We kind of, you know, you, you hear that, but you think, yeah, they all said that. And then we weren't aware that he had been kind of tipping away in the US, kind of shopping it out to uh, college radio, you know, getting it pushed on MTV. And suddenly we get a call out of nowhere. We were on a tour. We were the opening act for another band in Europe and nobody had a clue who we were. And suddenly um, we get this call to say, you've got to get on a plane, drop what you're doing, that Linger had charted at number eight, I think it was, in the Billboard charts, that we needed to get to, to America. And that was kind of it. That was the moment then that things started to kind of change. And we went up to, we flew to, it was Denver, Colorado, was the first gig we did in the US. And um, we came out, the place went crazy. We were, again, we were the opening act for another band. But everybody knew all the songs. We couldn't believe this because we had spent the bones of the year before this kind of playing to, you know, five people. None of them knew what we were doing, you know. A few people might have known Dreams or Linger or something like that. Um, and suddenly, you know, we were doing this every night. We were doing two gigs a night sometimes. It just completely took off. And, uh, you know, it, we were just kind of, we can't believe this is happening, considering we thought a couple of months earlier we were going to be dropped. Um, and then the album was re-released in all the other places. Again, they re-released it over in Europe, uh, down in Asia, and off the back of the success of the US, um, it just took off everywhere. So it was all of a sudden, it was a worldwide hit. Mm, what a roller coaster! I mean, it was your big yeah. hit here in Australia as well. Your first big hit, Linga. Um, mm. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the hottest 100 that Triple J runs, but it was number three in the countdown that year. I'd love to know a little bit more about that song and how it came about. Um, so Linga was the first song that Dolores and I wrote together. Um, it would have been during the time when, so the, the kind of male singer we had for a few months had left the band and we were trying to come up with ideas for songs. And uh, I, in my bedroom, came up with those. Like, Linger is a very, very simple song because like I was only playing guitar a, a short while. It was just kind of, look, I kind of got this strum with these chords that works together. I brought it into the two boys and they kind of forgot it in that kind of shuffle snare thing. And we had that for a long time. And then when Dolores came up, it was one of the first songs I played for her. And um, she really liked the sound of it. So I had a, a cassette version of it with just me playing acoustic on, on a cassette. And she took it away. That was the very first day I met her. And she came back on the, I think it was the, the following Thursday. And she said, oh, I've worked on that song here. I have some ideas. And she plugged in and we started playing it and she started singing it. And, and that was it. Like, basically, the version that she came back with is the version that everyone knows now. The song really never changed in that sense. Um, when we went in to do the demo of it a few months later, um, Dolores had the idea for that string part. So she put that down on keyboards and she did all those really high vocals that were layered behind that she kind of became very famous for. Our demo version was again very close to the finished version that uh, when we went to do the album. 
Stephen Street who produced it kind of fine-tuned it for us you know got rid of kind of a couple of bits here and there and, and tightened it up like Dolores always said the lyric wise you know she had met a guy one night at a disco or like a real teenage disco type of thing um, and funnily enough the guy was uh, just had joined the army or something and was was at home for a few days or something like that um, and, and that was what the song was about just that kind of chance meeting with this guy Linger for us was just another song in the set that we did. We had a bunch of songs. That was one. It wasn't anything for us at the time. We kind of didn't think it was anything extraordinary. Um, but it went on to be such a massive hit. Then, Linger for us, like it's a kind of it has a special place, I guess, because it um, it it was the first time we wrote together, and it was our first hit that kind of really launched the band into you know the public eye. You were talking a little bit about how, you know, you recorded it onto a cassette and Dolores took it away. Is this indicative of the way that you guys uh, wrote? Because the whole album was written by you and Dolores, or did your songwriting process change on different songs? Um, No, you know, for the whole 30 years together, we never sat in a room together and wrote at the same time. Um, I'd write at home, Dolores would write at home, and then we'd meet and go through it then. Um, so those songs, I would give her, I would come in and play it for everybody, the kind of idea, and go through it with the boys first. Then when Dolores would come in, i kind of play her the rough idea of what I had. So, uh, but back then we didn't have the technology to kind of layer everything down and, and recording, you know, the drums and bass as well weren't really an option. So for that first album, it was mainly acoustics just played into a really kind of crappy tape recorder mm. that the doors took away. And then we'd trash it out when George would come back with the stuff. We'd kind of work on structures and things like that. Mm. Um, and that was really for the first two albums were like that. And then as time went on, um, I started to kind of, realised I kind of got a small Pro Tools rig that allowed me to kind of flesh out the demos a bit more that I could give a fin- a more finished kind of version of what it was I was thinking on the songs that I co-wrote with her. Mm. Um, and, and that's how it progressed. And as I got more used to that over the years, a lot of the time now, I would have, you know, especially the last few albums, I would have like given a very big produced demo version of the song to Dolores then Dolores would give me back she'd kind of go off and do her vocal at home you know just she'd always find somebody who knew what they were doing technology wise and then kind of would plug her in she'd do the vocals send them back send over the demo I had sent her Mm. and she'd go look I had this idea and we kind of just stockpile the stuff then that to the point when we went in to do an album, we'd have everything ready then. And it was a lot easier to explain to everybody when you had demos that were far more kind of produced that, look, here's the kind of the road we're thinking of going down, mm. as opposed to trying to do it. 
in a room, sometimes you don't get your point across, you know, but uh, look, we managed to make it work. But that's that was our writing process for the whole time was was to kind of work alone and then meet and work together then. Yeah. Obviously, both of those have their merits, but man, listening to those initial cassettes that you guys were putting together must be magic. Yeah, yeah. Like when you hear um, the the demos there, sometimes it's kind of, uh, they're because they're on cassettes now, they sound kind of a bit rough. They haven't aged well, but it is kind of crazy to think that from these cassettes in a small bedroom, here in Ireland, you know, in a small town, that this, these massive, massive songs grew. Mm. Um, yeah, you know, believe me, we were more shocked than anybody else, you know, when, when things took off. I love the idea of Dolores and Noel passing these demo tapes back and forth to each other, slowly shaping these songs until they became the pieces that we know and love today. One of these songs was released in 1994. All these years later, and it still stops me in my tracks whenever I hear those first dirgy chords ring out. It went number one in Australia and across Europe. It helped the band's second album, No Need to Argue, sell 17 million copies around the world. And it was voted in at number one in Triple J's Hottest 100 of 1994. The song was Zombie. And I just had to ask Noel where this huge hit came from. Dolores came in with that one. That was, uh, we we had this tiny shed now, I can't explain how small it was, that used to be freezing in the winter, um, that we, a friend of ours let us rehearse in. And I always remember she came in and she said, I had this idea for a song, but I think it needs to be really, really heavy. Because if you listen to the first album in particularly, there's a lot of kind of jingly, kind of washy sounds in there, you know, the guitars especially. There's not any distortion really at any point. So she kind of had this idea for the song um, that there there had been a bombing um, in, in a place called Warrington and uh, two young boys were killed in it and, and she felt like how, you know, she felt kind of strong enough about this that Zombie came out of this song, like out of that, you know, act that she felt it's just ridiculous, you know, like who are the people doing this? And um, so... Lyrically, that song came from that that one moment, um, and basically, Dolores is disgusted with it. Um, but then the music needed to match that, um, and she felt that it had to be aggressive and heavy. And you know, she didn't kind of have to ask twice because once we kind of we were used to playing these softer kind of you know very sweeping kind of sounds. That uh, once we kind of discovered distortion, then. Um, that changed the sound of the band completely, I think, as the years went by. And we, especially live, um, became a lot heavier. And it was kind of really a godsend to us because we had been trying to do what we did on the albums live. And some of the earlier gigs were very empty because of that. Because I guess we had this kind of mental thing in our head that distortion meant you were like a heavy metal band or something like that. But we kind of learned to use it to our advantage.
even in recording Zombie when we were doing it, we just basically layered and layered the guitars so that we ended up with that big, big sound that, that everybody knows now. You say that Dolores felt really strongly about it and the song has mm. often been described as a protest song. Do you agree with that? Um, I don't, to be honest. I don't think it's a protest song. I think it's one person's kind of disgust at, at people's acts of violence. Um, and I think that's what she was trying to get across, is that, um, <clears throat> that this was just, you know so ridiculous and stupid it was whatever it was like the mid 90s at this point and people were still doing this um and it, you know it's it it's easy enough if you if you know kind of any small bit of irish history it there's a lot of references to it within the song um and i guess until that point like we'd never really um the doors hadn't really been anywhere political in any of the songs a lot of them were very much relationship based songs so um, you know, this was her first kind of jaunt into into that kind of area. Um, but it wasn't the kind of um, we want to shove our ideas down your throat kind of thing because we never considered ourselves a political band by any stretch. Um, but it was just she felt that moved about that one act that she felt she had to talk about it. So the Cranberries were huge in the 90s, right? They toured the world, selling out shows everywhere they went. Their music extensively soundtracked the films of the decade from uh, Empire Records, Boys on the Side, You've Got Mail, Clueless. They even graced the heavily homegrown soundtrack to Australian film Blackrock alongside artists like The Beasts of Bourbon, Clouds and Sidewinder. This level of success, particularly for a female-fronted band, was pretty rare for Ireland, so it's not really surprising to see the influence of the Cranberries play out decades later. Hello, we are Morgan and Gemma from St Sister. And we are calling you from a very rainy Dublin, Ireland. We first covered Dreams by the Cranberries around this time last year. We had been both very drawn to the song and um, the decision to sing it was an easy one. It's just such a beautiful song. We both grew up in Ireland in the 90s and the Cranberries were just one of those bands that kind of soundtracked that time and their music has really lived on, uh, particularly Dolores's voice. It's just so distinctive and charismatic. The way she can kind of throw it, it's almost like she's yodeling at points and then she can be completely vulnerable and fragile just in the next breath is incredible. When I was younger, I used to think that there were two front women in the band because of how they sometimes place emphasis on two lead vocals at once um, with two kind of different lines, two prominent front lines kind of weaving in and out of each other. And that's kind of what drew me to the song for us as there are two um, two lead vocals. And for that reason, we kind of did an acapella take on it. Now I tell you openly You have my heart so don't hurt me You're what I couldn't find 
A totally amazing mind So understanding and so kind You're everything I guess another unique aspect of Dolores' voice is the way she kept true to her accent while she was singing. Um, that's something that myself and Gemma have actually struggled with over the years. And growing up hearing her um, sing so clearly and so proudly in her own accent definitely gave us the confidence to finally find our own accents while we were singing and our own Irish accents. And um, she continues to be a massive inspiration to us. version gives me goosebumps. That's Irish duo Saint Sister, who grew up listening to the Cranberries and are among the next generation of Irish artists taking their music to the world. January 2018, Dolores O'Riordan passed away and there was an outpouring of grief from all over the world from fans who have cherished her music for much of their lives. Cranberries had actually been working on a new album in the months before Dolores's passing, and with the backing of her family, they decided to release it. Here's Noel talking about the impetus for the album. I guess the roots of this album began in early 2017. We were we were rehearsing for another tour. We had done this album. Um, it was called Something Else, and the album was basically stripped back versions, like acoustic versions of of a lot of our hits um, with, with a string quartet playing with us. And we were doing this and we were doing the tour and um, we were playing these older songs again, but we were kind of getting itchy feet, Dolores and I, about writing a new album of new material. So we this conversation began then and we were talking about different tracks and things like... So, um, unfortunately, I think it was May. That tour ran until May, but Dolores is back. She had this ongoing back problem for a while. And it just got worse on the tour. So we ended up having to cancel for a while. And Dolores went back to the States because uh, she was kind of living there. And I went to France um, and I was down the south of France. And I was on my own down there for a while. My my family were following me down after a few weeks because the kids were still at school. So I rang her and I was saying, what are you up to? And she was like, nothing. I'm kind of bored. And I was the same. And we decided, well, why don't we use the time productively and start writing another album? You know, we don't have to tell anyone anything. We just do it. And then when we feel we're ready, we can kind of go, look, here's here's what we have. And that's how it began, really. Um, so at night, I'd work um, 
kind of away. This was what June, yeah, June of 2017, and like I saw like all over now, which is the first single from it, like stuff like that. I'd send her over the demo of that, um, and then Doris would send me back ideas a few days later. Like here, I worked on that. I, you know, here's a verse and a chorus or bits and pieces like that, and this progressed from all that summer kind of into you know the winter up until December. So Dolores had been working on her own songs as well. She was between New York and Canada because her kids live up there. So she kind of, when she had an idea, she'd put it down, she'd send it over. And and so between both of us, we'd built up this nice collection of songs. Um, and then, like, unfortunately, you know, in January of 2018, Dolores passed away. And kind of, you know, there was obviously the shock of it all for everybody, but... After a while, I guess a month or six weeks or so, when the dust had settled, I kind of, I remember, you know, I have all this stuff. I, I must go through it, and I started going through the go through the drives bit by bit. And I kind of didn't realize how much we had because it had been spread out so long, and there was bits here and bits there that I'd never sat down and kind of listened to everything through from start to finish, and realized I had these eleven songs that. Um, I thought were really, really strong, really good, uh, in it musically, lyrically. I, I just felt this is, you know, it would be a shame to put this away. So spoke to the two boys about it, let them hear what they what I had. They loved it. Um, we spoke to the record company, spoke to Dolores' family, um, and then we went back to Stephen Street, who did a lot of our albums, especially the earlier ones, and uh, Steve was on board. And we kind of said, look, let's not waste any time because we may not feel the same about this in a year. And we went into the studio a few weeks later. You know, the record company liked the demos and they were like, yeah, work away. Um, and we kind of had all these rules where, look, if we felt that it wasn't working, we'd drop it straight away. Or if the album wasn't going to be as strong as other albums that we've done before, that we would not release it. You know, um, we just had to be sure because we had this fear, I guess, in a way that we would destroy the legacy of the band by releasing this album that were mainly like a lot of it were that the vocals were only ever meant to be demos. But thankfully, Dolores' vocals or even her demo vocals were good enough that you could use them. Um, and after, so we spent, I think it was April and May of last year recording it. And... Um, Steve mixed in the following few weeks and uh, you know we lived with it but we, we kind of felt really 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 good about it and decided that we would push ahead with releasing it finished my chat with Noel, I just had to do one of my favourite things, ask an artist to reflect. So, looking back on their three decades in music, the incredible success, the gutting loss of Dolores, I asked Noel how he feels looking back on the Cranberries' career. Over the last year, when you're kind of reflecting back on things, it's really the, the, those early days from when we first met to really, I guess, up around the time of 
when things started to take off. You know, you remember those parts the best because we were we were this little gang that came from Ireland, from, from Limerick. And uh, we were kind of just, it was the four of us, you know, with a couple of friends in a van driving around playing to basically empty rooms a lot of the time. But we had a lot of fun in doing it. We really, really enjoyed it. And uh, it just, it was just us. There was nobody else involved. There was no outside influences you were very much in control and we were just writing songs that we really liked and and I always remember that part I think with with the most fondness because you're you're kind of it's us against the world type of thing I know it's a cliche but it was a bit of that and and it was your first time doing all this stuff like your first time recording an album first time doing a tour you know even the first time you get a song that goes into the charts all these things are new to you and it's kind of, you're amazed by everything. And we were so young. We were really, we were all only 19, 20 when, when we had the big success, um, which, you know, at the time you think, oh, I know everything. But, you know, looking back at it now, 30 years later, I realize how young we were. And um, you just, you kind of, they're, they're my fondest memories. And, and it's all been enjoyable. But I mean, the thing is, it becomes more of a job as the years go by in that it's it's a business as well as a you know your band and you you always have to kind of you end up a lot more people around and kind of you like tours become a very serious thing and you got to meet with accountants and managers and all that kind of stuff which we always hated you know and it's no offense to any of the people who worked with us it was just it's not why we started and it was just it used to bore us a bit to be honest Mm, but I love that at the core of it, you were just all friends and there's a bit of camaraderie mm. in that, that you're all just experiencing the wild ride that you went on together. Yeah. Yeah. Because when you, when you start the band coming from, you know, now Limerick's grown a lot in that time, but back then it was a small kind of town in Ireland that like there hadn't really been much had gone on here. Um, and, you you hope, like you start a band, you think, oh, it'd be great if I kind of got a hit in, you know, in Ireland type of thing. You don't really think I'm going to be as big as we ended up being. You know, I certainly never thought, you know, in a few years' time, we'd be like one of the biggest bands in the world playing, you know, sold out arenas, all that kind of stuff. But, you, you know, it just, you're happy to kind of, you were sold out, a room of 500 people, it was, you know, that was a great thing. You were delighted and you were over the moon and, and each like, it's baby steps, but it just, when it did happen, we were kind of pinching ourselves that this was actually real, that this was, you know, it was the four of us kind of kids that had, you look out over this crowd of people and you just think we did all this. Um, it's, it's a lot to take on. We did all this. They really did. And we loved them for it. I'm Gemma Pike. You've been listening to The J-Files. And I'll end now with some of your favourite memories of the Cranberries. Hey, this is Margaret. I'm from Adelaide. The Cranberries take me back to the 90s, driving uh, along on an overland truck around about eight different countries in Africa. Yeah, I have very vivid memories of um, that amazing voice of Dolores. The big guitars, the drums. So, yeah, I think they're just amazing.
Hey, this is Simon from Melbourne. I love the Cranberries for Dolores' voice and their haunting melodic songs. Um, they were one of my bands of, of the 1990s. I was at university at the time, and No Need to Argue was one of my albums of the 90s. It's an album I still go back to time and time again and pour over and listen to every little detail of it. The Cranberries are one of my favourite bands, and, um, yeah, absolutely love listening to them to this very day. The J-Files.